You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. They catch Sunday morning on life. So, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to finish our series that we've been doing. I can't remember what week it is, but we're in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to cover this entire chapter tonight, we are going to end our Be Real series. Be Real, a study in 1 John. Be Real, a study in 1 John. I've got a couple different Bibles up here that are going to help me out tonight, and I brought them by intention because 1 John has some of uh, the most contested, let's say, uh, passages of Scripture. I, I wouldn't say most contested, but uh, a passage and parts that are debated over that are contested often. So it's good for us to know it. It's good for us to look at this. And we're going to get into the Word of God. So I want us just to ask the Lord if He could help us tonight because I need the Lord to help me, and I know you need the Lord to help you, that God would anoint His Word to our hearing. So would you just pray real quick with me right where you're sitting? Lord, thank you so much for your Word. I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for what you have taught us in this series as we've gone verse by verse. And I ask tonight that it be no different. God, let your word, God, be, be quickened to our heart and to our mind and to our spirit. And God, let us be challenged tonight, Lord, and let us be encouraged by the hope of your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're here, 1 John chapter number 5. And we closed out chapter number four. And so now we come into the last uh, segment of this small epistle. But John, with such concise words, has the ability to pack so much into it, if you will. Chapter five, verse one. And in this, I want to title this section, chapter five, one through five, the portrait of an overcomer. And I don't have my slide tonight with my outline, my four points, but I'll give those to you. So the portrait of an overcomer is the first point in tonight's outline. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God. And we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Wow, what an awesome statement. What a powerful testimony. What a truth here that we can know. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now I want us to just note here for a moment that John is summarizing some things that he's already discussed. And if you've been here with us, you've been following along, and you know that he's talked about the reality of being in fellowship with God, that light hath no fellowship with darkness, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we're going to have fellowship with him and with his body. He also talks strongly and greatly at great length about love and love within the church, loving one another. We dealt with that last week. And so now, uh, uh, well, again, he talked about uh, let's see, false prophets. He talked about truth versus error. And he talked about the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he is the great I am, the great eternal one, manifest in flesh. And he is begotten. He uses that language in his gospel. He uses that word again here, begotten. Uh, there's an old word I'm trying to uh, think of here that I, I think it is, I could be wrong, and Sister Becky's not here tonight to help me with my English. But progenitor, uh, I think, is the word which means he's not only, uh, he is the father. That's the language that is used most often. He's the father, uh, uh, and Jesus is the son of God. He is the offspring of God. But uh, uh, the God who we cannot see 
and, and, and cannot see with our physical eyes that invisible God without limitations manifest himself, this is what Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, and made himself visible and seeable. And God is not two beings, but he is God uh, uh, without limitation, God transcendent, let's say, and then God manifest. And Jesus Christ is the manifest of that eternal God, of that God without limitation. And, and, and uh, God is... Uh, Jesus is the begotten of God. He's the son of God in that sense, that God is, I think it's the word, progenitor of Jesus Christ. Where did Jesus come from? We have to ask that question. Well, he comes from God because he is God, is what John is saying. He didn't just come from God. He's not a special person uh, uh, in the sense that he's a mere person, but he's special in the sense that he is God manifest in the flesh. And uh, so this is what he's talking. And he says, look, if you believe that Jesus Christ is born of God, uh, uh, then, he's, uh, then you are a child of God. You're going to believe this. You're going to accept this truth. If you reject it, if you say that you believe in God and you love God and you reject and you deny the Messiah, you reject Jesus Christ as being uh, uh, God manifests in the flesh. He said, you are not a part of God. You can't reject God. And of course, he starts his epistle by saying, I'm coming to be a witness and a testifier of this. And he's going to talk a little bit more about witnesses in this part. So look at what he says. He's summarizing it. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you are born of God. You've accepted that. You've not only believed that, but you act on that belief. Now, now he's, uh, uh, let's not, let's pause for a moment because I don't want us to be mistaken. I don't want you just to say, well, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, therefore I'm born of God and everything's okay in my life. What John's going to show us later on is if you really believe that Jesus is God and he is the Messiah, then you are going to live in a way that testifies of that belief. Amen? Amen? So if this building was on fire and we said, is it on fire? And you said, yes, I believe it's on fire. And you're sitting there in your pew and you did not move and the flames got higher and the smoke got thicker and it got hotter and the pew starts burning. You're not going to say, no, 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 I believe it's on fire. If you believe it's on fire, what are you going to do? You're going to get up and you're going to get out. Because that belief demands an action. So what John, is, what John is not saying here is he is not saying that mere expression, uh, uh, mere, uh, uh, let's say, speaking of belief is, is, is makes you born of God. He's saying, no, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then you are born of God. So if we were going to unfold that, what does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It's to believe that God manifests and he came, and not only is the Messiah, but every word he says is true, and therefore what he says is true about him coming back is true, and we're going to live in a way that we are ready for his return. Amen? Somebody say amen. So that's, that's our belief that he is God. And then he says, and everyone that loveth him that begat... Loveth him also that is begotten of him. So if you love the one that begat, who's the one that begat? Well, it's the God, God eternal, God without limitation, God unknowable, God that was before the beginning, God that's from everlasting to everlasting. That's the God who begat. From him all things come. Every good and perfect gift cometh from the Father above. He's the progenitor of all things. And if you, if you believe it, if you love him, then you're going to love what he's done. You're going to love his revelation. You're going to love the logos. You're going to love the expression that he set. You're going to love the outbeaming of his glory. You're going to love, we could go through all of those words that express God. You're going to love the Messiah, the fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. You're going to love him also. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So now he's saying, okay, we also know we love God when we're, when we're loving the children of God and when we're keeping his commandments. So he's unfolding this here for us. 
we, we follow on with that. <clears throat> For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Let me pause here for just a moment and highlight this. His commandments are not grievous. If you want to make a mental note in your heart, in your spirit, you can write it down in your notebook, but this needs to be in your heart. Nothing God ever asks of me is a hardship. Now, sometimes we interpret it as a hardship. Well, God, why are you making me do this? Come on. Everybody else gets to have fun, and here I am. I'm doing all this. But when you take the blessings of God out of the picture, only then is it a hardship. And that's exactly what Satan did to Eve in the garden. What, the, what Lucifer did to Eve in the garden was he came to her, and he said, did God tell you you can't eat this? He said, didn't you know when you eat this you're going to be like God? He was trying to let him know God's holding out on you. And I'm going to tell you, that's the same lie that the enemy uses today when he comes to you and says, you know what? It doesn't really hurt anything if you do this. Don't you know God's holding out on you? Can I tell you, God is never holding out on you. And his commandments are not grievous. So if there's something in the word that God asks of me, then guess what? The benefits of doing what, living by his word, are way going to outweigh any cost it might have of me up front. Somebody say amen. Amen. I never gave anything up that God didn't bless me with something better in my life. So don't live looking back. Amen. Don't live looking back because his commandments are not grievous. Now, sometimes people use this with regard to uh, uh, this temptation most often, often comes up with commandments of the thou shalt nots, of the thou shalt nots. That's, what Satan, that's where Satan used it. Because God said, look, I've set you in the garden. You can have everything you want, but don't do this. And when Lucifer comes to her, he says, look, God's holding out on you. You can have all of this stuff and you can have this also. I'm going to tell you, there are prohibitions that God puts in Scripture for us for a reason. And if God puts a prohibition in there, it is a gift. It is a gift from what it's keeping us from. And I don't have time to go through this. You can go through this uh, uh, on your own time. But when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, God gave them some specific things. And he said, look, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do this. When you go into the promised land, he said there's going to be Canaanites. There's going to be people that are going to be living certain ways. And I don't want you to do certain things. And he spelled it out, but he, he said, I don't want you to act like they act. I don't want you to look like they, I don't want you to dress like they dress. I don't want you to eat what they eat. And the reason why he was telling this was not just because he was a, a mean uh, uh, God that didn't want them to have any fun. He was saying, look, they're eating the things they're eating and they're dying. They're living the way they're living and they're dying. I don't want you to do this because I don't want you to die. They are, they are perverting and polluting every uh, freedom and liberty that I've given to humanity, even to the extent of immorality, gross immorality, things that, that, that's un unbelievable. And God says, I don't want you to be doing that because it's killing them. And then what good is it? What good is it if you're in hell? What good is it if you live just a few years so you experience something, uh, uh, whatever, but now you experience no more. And he's saying, I don't want you to do this because it robs from what the blessings that I have and the things I have to give for you. So can I tell you, the more you mature in Christ and the more you get close to Christ and the more you love God, the more you realize this revelation right here, his commandments are not grievous. And if I never taught anything else in this entire uh, uh, five-chapter study, if we just walked away understanding this, his commandments are not grievous. You put that in practice. God says, hey, I want you to do this. It's not grievous. God says, you say, well, God, uh, let's pick something simple. God, I don't, I don't want to pay my tithe. I don't want to give 10%. What, who, who, whose idea is this for me to give 10%? God, I can't afford 10%. And God says, look, if you'll just honor me with your first fruits, he said, I'll bless you more than you could ever imagine. How many times have you been tempted? Now, I've been paying my tithes for as long as I've been making money. 
was raised in, in, in church. My parents taught me this by example as a young age. And it doesn't matter how long I live. There's some weeks when I go to write that check or some months when I go to write that check or when I go to put whatever's in there, the enemy says, oh, you know, you could really use that. Can I get a witness? And how many times do you do something and all of a sudden, as soon as you do that, the Lord comes through. And then sometimes it's times where you think, okay, the Lord didn't come through or I'm still short here. I still need to make this or whatever. And you're thinking the Lord didn't come through, but can I tell you, God always comes through in the end. And you may go through a season of your life where you think the Lord's not coming through. And you say, well, God, I've been faithful. I've been faithful in my attendance. I've been faithful in my giving. I've been faithful in my serving. I've done all this stuff. And now here I am. I'm left out in the cold and I'm all on my own. Here's what David said. David was out there and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he writes a whole psalm, Psalm chapter 22, about it. He said, God, I've been faithful. I've done all this stuff. And now you're not here. You're not helping me. I'm living in a cave. I'm not even living in the promised land. I'm, I'm estranged from my family. I can't even go back. You want to talk about not being able to get together with, with holidays and stuff. I mean, this was a horrible situation. But later on in life, David picks up the pen again, so to speak. And he says, I have been young and now I'm old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken. God was always there. Hang on because God's going to prove his word. And when you come out, you say, hey, his commandments are not grievous. They're not grievous. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not out anything because God has blessed me more than I ever could have imagined. Amen. I, I feel the Holy Ghost in the house tonight. I thank God. He's a good God. He's a good God. And we got to remind ourselves of that. His commandments are not, you know what? Yeah, you, so you say, well, I, man, I missed out on this and I missed out on that. You know what I missed out on in my life? I missed out on a whole lot of hangovers. I missed out on a whole mess of headaches. I missed out on a whole mess of other stuff. And, and I thank God for that. I thank God for what he's done. You say, well, I didn't miss out on that. I had that. But once you gave your life to God, all of a sudden things changed. Amen? And now, thank, look at what he's kept us from, what he keeps us from, and the blessings that we enjoy in our life right now. Sometimes, my wife and I have been talking about this because you go through seasons of life. And I'm just talking tonight here a little bit. Is this all right? Um, we had, I think it was last week, I had my entire plumbing system in my house backed up, and it's a mess. I mean, that's one thing that I, I did not want to ever deal with in my life was that, that kind of stuff right there. And so I'm trying to fix it. I try to fix one thing, and that doesn't fix it, and I do want to. And so I finally, I go to the store, and I get, you know, we sh we're all, like, totally shut down, you know, whatever. We're living through that, and it happened two weekends ago, and we make it through the weekend. And so Sunday night or Monday morning, I get up to work, and I go to to the hardware store, and I buy all the tools, and I'm snaking this drain, and I'm figuring everything out, and we've already dealt with, we've already dealt with some sewer issues a year ago, and now I'll fix it again, and I get it all done, and man, I'm great, and I'm happy, only to wake up the next morning, and, and now early in the morning, J Janelle's giving Luca a bath, and the tub isn't draining at all, and then it finally drains, we don't know, and it backs up again, and it's all, all this mess, and you got... So you got to do all this. So I spent two days. So I fixed that, and I get that done, and I get that one all fixed up. And then the next bathroom, for so no, no connected reason, starts gurgling. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? It's just life. It's just happening. And all these things, and I'm frustrated. And day three, you're, you know what it is, and, and you're, you're kicking the walls. You know, come on, can I just be really? And you're just, you're just so mad and why did I do this? And, and now everything, right? It's, it's everybody else's fault, right? It's always every, you come up with everything. Well, you know, you know, that's how the devil is. You're just, all it is is a simple little problem. But now it's the wife's fault. It's the son's fault. It's, it's the fault. Well, it's because I bought this house. Well, the reason why I bought, and then, you know, the reason why I bought this house, God, and the reason why I bought this house, God, is because you called me here. And if you wouldn't, God, so really this is your fault. Right? Come on. Isn't that how it is? Something so simple breaks. And we, by the time we get done, we're so mad and kicking and we're going around. And it's like we're blaming God for everything. And realize you got to stop back. And if I, I got it all fixed, by the way. Praise God. Glory. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. But 
you get, you get done and the dust settles and you look around and you just got to be grateful and you just got to be thankful. And you say, man, I've got so much. I'm so rich. I'm so blessed. When I get into a bed at night and, and uh, my whole family's in the bed with me, I'm trying to thank God for that. But um, I'm just thankful that we're like, praise God. I mean, I'm blessed. And I would trade I would trade so much more in, in life for the peace. We were talking about that in our home. That's been, our, that's been sort of our theme of the last week, just thanksgiving. God's just been bringing us back to it. His commandments are not grievous. I'd rather live this way. There was a song that came out in the 90s written by Dandy, and he said, I choose to be a Christian. I choose to be a Christian. And one line of the song, we thought it was the coolest song to sing in church. He said, nobody's holding a gun to my head. This is how I choose to live. I'm choosing this life because that's how good God has been to me. Can we put our hands together and thank the Lord? Amen. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, okay? And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So that's self-explanatory. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. I'm not subject to the world anymore. That's what he's talking about here. He, uh, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So this is not a mere mental exercise. This is a belief, a belief that has changed the way you live. I am a believer. Remember the Christians, the early church didn't call themselves Christians, they called themselves believers. They called themselves disciples. When Paul comes to Ephesus, he said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He acknowledged believers were believers. And so now he's going to talk about the next part, 5, 6, and 8, is what I would like to call the witness of Christ. So he's already, and this is summary. So we're going we're to rush through this here because I got about just a few more minutes here. He said, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Now, John is writing here, and again, we're going back to the witness. The word witness is a key word in this epistle. We see it in chapter 1. We see it later on. This word witness. And he says... I am here to be a witness. I handled him. I touched him. But now he's saying, not only my testimony, okay, let's, let's move my testimony aside. He said, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And here's his testimony. His testimony, God gave a testimony that Jesus is Christ. This is what he's writing. He's writing to defend that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, that he is the anointed one. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And he says he came by water and he came by blood. Now that's two nods to things. So if we're reading this in our Gentile language we're not, or uh, uh, context with, with no regard to what's taken place, we're not going to understand this. Now there are some people that would say that this uh, uh, is reference to the testimony of the death on the cross, when they pierced his heart, when they pierced his side through, um, that was to signify that he was actually uh, completely dead. The other thieves on the cross, they came and they broke their legs. And that was a process, horrific thing that they would do in crucifixion. Because in crucifixion, it elongated the death. Uh, and, and the way that as long as they could pull up, they could inhale. And the moment they lost the ability to pull up, and the last thing to lose would be their muscle strength. And their feet would push themselves up. They could breathe because their body was literally being stretched, hung out. Horrific way to die. And so they would break their legs and that would cause the suffocation. They could not breathe. But with Christ, the Bible says, prophesied that not one bone of his body would be broken. Which is amazing that he would endure a Roman crucifixion and for whatever reason not have a broken bone in that process. Absolutely incredible that he would endure the height of pain, but his bone, his body would not be broken. At, and of course, he was not broken because we know the end of the story. He rose again, but they pierced his side and out of it flowed water and blood. It did not mix and it signified uh, uh, a medical 
uh, person would understand that it signified he, it, testifying that he was dead. His heart had given up in that process. But most people believe that what he's talking about here is that Christ came by water and he came by blood, that he's making an argument here for the testimony and the witness of God. And those things would be this. That was this, that Christ came by water. That was, he was the anointed one, but he also was baptized. And if you go back to the baptism of Jesus Christ, which is signified in the gospel, uh, uh, there was a supernatural uh, audible voice that took place to give witness to Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And that was that when John the Baptist would baptize Jesus in the water, he would make a way. It was a ritual cleansing process that all Jews were familiar with. But now this was signifying something significant. The Spirit, the Bible says, descended like a dove, not as not a dove, but like a dove. There was a visible presence. There was a visible uh, transcendence that took place in that moment. And there was a voice, and the Lord said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And it was at that moment that there was an audible witness and testimony. And from that day, many disciples began following Christ from that point of his baptism, not until the point of his baptism. And then his ministry begins. And the second thing is not only by water, but by blood. And that is the blood that he shed on the cross. He endured the cross. And there were so many prophecies that were carried out at the cross. So many Old Testament prophecies that culminated that it signified and testified that he was the Christ. In fact, the power of the moment was so overwhelming that a Gentile, a Roman centurion stood by the day that Jesus gave up the ghost, the Bible says. And he even declared, surely, truly, this must be the Son of God. So John is talking here about the witness of Jesus Christ. And he says, this is he that came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. And so he's giving to us, there's witnesses. Don't just take my word for it, John's saying. Yes, I handled him. Yes, I saw him. But you don't have to just believe me. You have history. You have the testimony of the water. You have the testimony of the blood. And you have the witness of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord. For there are three in verse 7 that bear record in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. What are these three that he's talking about? Is he separating God? Is he, is he uh, uh, presenting some new theology here? He says, and these three are one. These three are one. Not one committee. This is a mathematical thing. These three are one. He said there are three that bear record in heaven or that testify, that witness that can witness, and that is this, the Father. Who's the Father? He's the author. He's the creator. He's the progenitor of all things. That's why he's called the Father. There's the Father. There's the Word. What's the Word? Well, John is the one that wrote the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the Word? The Word is the Logos, or the revealed of God, the revealing of God, God revealing himself. God literally defining himself. God as the author, as the father, revealing himself. And that is a witness. And then he said, and the Holy Ghost. What is the Holy Ghost? What is the Holy Spirit? You've heard me say this before. The Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost is the relative presence of God. God is a spirit. He's without limit. So God has no limit. So based on that, God is everywhere. Right? But in our life, we in sin are dead to all of that. He might as well be nowhere because we don't know him. But when you encounter the presence of God, you are not encountering God's locale. Does that make sense? You're not, you're not all of a sudden stumbling upon the location of God in the sense that he's here now and he wasn't before. No, he was always here. 
but you are encountering the relativity of God, if that makes sense. You, God has manifest himself. This spirit that is all things, that's without limit, has now made himself knowable. He was always here, but now you feel him. He was always here. But now you're, you're, you're encountering either his grace or his judgment. You're encountering his voice of truth. You're encountering his, his relativity, if it will, to humanity. God is without limit. We are fi finite. He is infinite. And so when we talk about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the relative presence of God. If God is everywhere, how can we say be filled with the Holy Ghost? He's not saying that God is filling a cavity, that he's void. God's everywhere. God can do anything. He's without limit. But what he's talking about is the presence of God. We'll, we'll say this in our services sometimes, or we'll say it about church. Man, I felt the Spirit of the Lord today at church. Or wow, you can really feel the Spirit moving at church. The reality is God is everywhere. And you can, you can call on the name of the Lord in your car, and God can be there. Can I tell you some of the strongest moments a feeling of the Holy Ghost in my life have not necessarily been in a church service. Thank God for that. It's been in a prayer meeting where I needed him the most and God came down and he touched me and he was there. Prophetic moments where God comes down and speaks to you, where God deals with you. Amen. Thank God for that. Uh, uh, so, so these are the three things, the father, the progenitor, the creator, the author, the word, the revelation, the revealing of God. And then the Holy Spirit, the relative presence of God. These three bear witness, in, bear record in heaven. What are they bearing record of? They're bearing record of the testimony. They're testifying, amen, that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. Just what Isaiah said. For unto us, what does it say? A child is born. Unto us a son is given. Right? And his name shall be called... Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah prophesied that baby Jesus would be the Everlasting Father. Not separate from the Everlasting Father, but the Everlasting Father manifests in the flesh. And look at what John says, these three bear record, and these three are one. Now, are one. Now, if you have three and you put them together... There's still three. They're just together. But if you have one, amen, mathematically one, this is why Jesus was killed, because he claimed to be God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. Literally, the Greek term there, that which translated English in our Bible, literally means I and my Father are one and the same. That's why they killed him. If he was just coming saying, I'm the Son of God, just like you're the Son of God, because behold, we're called the sons of God together, the children of God. He was not saying, I'm just the child of God, like you're a child of God. He was saying, I am God. I am the offspring. I am the brainchild of God. So these three are one. This is a powerful verse. This is a powerful verse. Amen. These three are one and the same. So mathematically one. So how many gods are there? Well, there's one God. So God is testifying in heaven as the Father. He's testifying as the Word, and he's testifying as the Spirit of God. So when we talk about the Holy Ghost, we got to be careful that we're not talking about some... When I talk about the Holy Ghost, I'm talking about the relative presence of the Almighty God. So I'm talking about the Spirit of the Father coming down and dwelling in my life and taking control of my life, taking lordship, let's say, of my life. So that's not something different. Amen. That's not another part of God. So we would deny or refute based on all of Scripture and all the truths of Scripture, we would refute the traditional historical trans. Uh, 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 interpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity because the doctrine of the Trinity historically, now there's many different viewpoints and that gets really complicated, but the traditional doctrine of the Trinity that the Catholic Church espoused to taught that there were three persons in the Godhead. 
that there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible never uses those lang that language. The Bible never says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit because it doesn't distinct, it doesn't separate. What it's talking about is the roles that God is operating in. He's operating as Father, the transcendent one that we can't see. He's operating as the Word, the one that is revealed, the one that is Christ. And he's operating as the Holy Spirit, the relative presence of God at work in your life. That's not a different, uh, that's not another being of God. It's the same God, the same Spirit. So when we get to heaven, we're not going to see three different thrones. We're not going to see three different parts. We're not going to have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When we get to heaven, we're going to see one sitting upon the throne, and Daniel and Revelation both agrees that it is the Ancient of Days, and he is the one that was from everlasting. And so there's one God. Everybody say one God. John was so absolute on this. John is absolute on this. When you read his gospel, when you read his epistle, and then when you read the revelation of Jesus Christ, wow, it's absolute. You can understand that John believed in the oneness of God. That's what he espoused to. There was only one God. And sometimes in our attempt among what we would classify ourselves as oneness Pentecostalism because that deserves a unique distinction because we deny the traditional interpretation of the Trinity, by the way, a lot of Trinitarians would acknowledge that our articulation of our theology is actually biblically correct and accurate, and the early church would have espoused to that, but they say it doesn't really matter, or they just want to hold on to the traditional language of the church, and they don't want to let go of that, so therefore they hold on to that, and they'll teach all the same thing and say, yeah, I agree with you, but, and then they hold on to that language. We would say, look, don't use some language that was incorporated into the church hundreds of years after Christ and just speak to that. Let's stick to the book. Let's stick to the word, amen? And let's stay to the word. So uh, uh, just, just because you have a, a friend or someone that, or maybe you don't understand it all, and you say, well, well, I think I believe in the Trinity. Well, let's get into the word and let's always hold true to the word and what the word says here. And uh, I'm going to stand on the word more than the doctrine of men every day. And I'm going to hold true to that. But uh, there's only one God, and we know that. And John was a defender of that. And in fact, he's arguing to the point here, saying don't, in this epistle earlier, he's saying don't give time to false prophets. Don't give time to error. Amen. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. When you make Jesus something less then the everlasting Father, you create a confusion up in heaven and you create a catastrophe and it doesn't work out. So uh, there are three then in verse 8. Now let me pause here and say there's a, uh, real quick, one minute. In verse 7, there are people that believe in, if you will look at verse 7, for there are three that bear record. Okay, if you were to put uh, a parenthesis from in heaven, and go all the way through verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in the earth, and put in parentheses there. There's a big, the big contest over John, 1 John chapter 5, is that most, a lot, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of biblical scholars now in the West, in the Western hemisphere, believe that this was a later addition to the epistle. And it's called the, the Joan, and I'm not saying that word right, coma, and it's an addition and there's a, a massive amount of early Greek manuscripts that do not have this portion in it. And so it's the one part of the Bible that people think is added in there that was added in later, okay? However, the problem is, and I'm just giving this to you, while most of them agree with that, they're, agree, they're agreeing to follow a man by the name of Bruce Metzger, who was a critical text guy who didn't believe that the Bible was actually without error, um, and that's a big argument for another day. Here's the problem. Uh, there were, Jerome translates the Bible into Latin in 400 AD, and by that time, Jerome is already acknowledging that the Arian church was taking this portion out of Scripture. And so what it seems to be is there's enough evidence that it is there in the old Latin, the early Latin that Jerome translated from 
had this. So while there's a lot of people saying that this part of Scripture ought to be thrown out, there is testimony, early witness, that says this is actually the Word of God. And so if you're asking what translation of the Bible should I read, that's one reason why we can hold to to the, the Texas Receptus and the King James Version, uh, even though it is an older, archaic English in some ways, let's say, that's not spoken today. Um, it holds true to some things, whereas a lot of your translations, if you were to go to the ESV, more contemporary translations, they would not have this passage in there. What we just talked about would not even exist in there. Now, you've heard me say, um, I like the uh, New Living Translation, but the New Living Translation should not be used for doctrinal purposes. It should always be used in parallel to another translation because the New Living Translation would also, they would take some of this stuff out there. They wouldn't, they wouldn't keep that in there. So that's important. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And if I go through this, the water, the blood, the spirit, uh, the relative presence of God, the testimony of baptism, the testimony of the cross, those things God is saying, John is saying, those bear witness in the earth. So, so you had the spirit of God moving among men. How did the spirit move? Well, by the way, Christmas is a good time to remember that. There are four angelic visitations during Christmas, what we call Christmas, the nativity. And I preached on it a few years ago. I think we highlighted the podcast, Four Reasons to Fear Not. Um, you can go back and watch that or, or listen to that on our podcast and website. Four angelic visitations, the highest concentration of angelic activity in the entire Bible revolves around the birth of Christ. Four angels visit four different people. And that's a powerful thing when you go back and you look at that. Um, but that testified the spirit was moving. This angelic, they, the spirit of God moving among men, supernatural things. That was a witness and a testimony of things that were taking place. And, and man, there were so many other things that were taking place. I, my mind's going crazy right now of all the testimonies that testify that Jesus Christ was the Messiah when he was on this earth. The Jews literally had to stumble over themselves to resist it. God kept popping up a sign and they kept saying, no, I'm not believing. And God kept pulling up another sign and another sign and another sign. And yet they still would not believe. And that's why it was, it was so amazing. It was just unbelievable that they, they didn't say, wow, this is, he's the Messiah. So anyway, the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. So we say, look, if you will believe, if somebody says, hey, it's snowing outside and we didn't go outside, you're going to turn to the next person and say, hey, do you know it's snowing outside? Did you know it's snowing outside? Somebody, in fact, told you, whether it was over news media, newspaper, TV, that there was, there was even worse snow uh, uh, somewhere else than here. And you believe them and talk to somebody else about it as if it was fact. And how do you know that they weren't showing you video footage up in Alaska from like years ago? You believe them. If you believe the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. He that believeth on the son of God hath the witness in himself. And he that believeth not God hath made God a liar. So if you say, no, I don't believe. Okay, God has already testified of it. So you're saying God's a liar? Okay, now that's pretty powerful. You're saying God is a liar if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, John's really putting us on the spot here. And he said, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave his Son. And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So if you have God, if you're a believer, you've got, you've got all the promises. But if you let go of God, guess what? You let go of all of his promises. This goes back to verse number three. The moment you begin thinking that the commandments of God are grievous is the moment that you begin letting go of the promises of God. It's the moment you begin to start taking off your life vest, your spiritual life vest of eternity. When you're thinking, oh, man, I got to do this. I got to do that. Now, let's go on to the next point here, and, and I'm going I'm to close in less than five minutes here. The witness of God, verse 9. Or, or no, we've already talked about that. The witness of God, we've already talked about that. Did we read that? Yeah, if we receive the witness of men. You've got that. I don't need to go back. I, I, 
13. The witness of God, by the way, in your bulletin was chapter 5, verses 9 through 12 in your bullet points, not your bulletin, your outline of this. The next part would be the last part, and I'm going to title this Our Our Assurance, chapters 5, verses 13 through 21. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He's saying, here's the purpose why I'm writing, so that you have this assurance of eternal life. You can know that you know. He's calling and he's writing those folks, hey, you've been living for God, you're doing the right thing. You've got an assurance. He's calling you into remembrance. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now, I could preach on that all night. I don't even have time for that. If you ask anything according to his will, what does this tell us? It tells us that God hears our prayers and it tells us the power of his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Okay, that's the formula. Keep it, keep it like that. If you change it, it messes it up. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. You want God to hear you? You've got to ask, and you've got to ask according to his will. You cannot ask not according to his will. Hear me? You can't ask according to your will. You've got to ask according to his will. God, I have a prayer request. And my prayer request, this is what I want. This is what I need. God, I'm I'm demanding of you. That's not how God works. But if you come to God and say, God, I want your will in this situation. I want your will in this circumstance. Guess what? He hears you. He knows where you're at. So we ask according to his will. And And we know he hear us whatsoever we ask. And if we know he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You know why God's going to give Sister Dawn peace tomorrow for the surgery? Because she has faith in God and because she believes and because we know he hears us and we've asked God according to your will. And so now it's in his hands. Sister Natasha, you know why your mom has peace about her situation? She said it's because she knows that God hears her. Amen. I referenced that last week. She she was talking about the peace of God. And if any man, now he goes on to something different. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. So here John contrasts the love of God with the justice of God. Previously he's spoken about the greatness of the love of God and how God's love is for all men at all times. And now he makes a contrast, an interesting thing. What John is saying here, and this is a little confusing. We we may lose this in the Old English. If I was going to, let me read this in the New Living Translation. He says, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead him to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. He's saying pray for somebody. But then he goes on and says, but there is a sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying that you should pray for those that commit it. He's contrasting. He's saying, look, if there's somebody that's sinning, there is a sin. People can sin. Not all sin leads to death. He goes on in verse 17, and he says this, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Uh, uh, or, or the NLT says, All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. Not every sin is going to bring death in your life. But there is all sin, all unrighteousness is sin. And so he's saying, if you're seeing people living in sin, if you're seeing people do things, pray for them, because they're yet alive. They can be saved. Who's he talking about? He's talking about born-again believers. He's talking about people that fail. That's why we have hope for backsliders. This is what John is saying. When somebody makes a mistake and they walk away, pray for them because God can restore their life. God can bring life back into them. But he's saying, but there is a sin that brings to death. And there comes a point where somebody can choose. They can become a slave of their own choice, so much so that God says, look, I can't do anymore. What more can I do? I've testified. I've come to the cross. I died for their sins. I've loved them. I've blessed them. And yet they still refuse and they reject me. And they're walking away from me. And they desire the evil things of this world. There's no prayer that can be prayed for that because that point, it's left up to that individual. It doesn't matter how hard you fast and pray. You can't make somebody live for God. And that's a reality. Sometimes we go to the God and say, God, just save them. 
as if God hasn't done everything he possibly can to save them already. He gave himself for them. Stand together with me. <clears throat> All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin that leads not unto death. He said, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, we've already talk, talked about this. It doesn't mean you're perfect and you don't fail, but you don't keep sinning. You don't live a sinful life. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Amen. And we know that we are God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and he hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and that we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. I'm thankful that I'm able to live in that revelation. Amen. And that knowledge of knowing who God is. Are you thankful for that tonight? Amen. And then finally, he closes with one interesting little verse after he put it all up. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Have you, I remember when mom and dad would leave the house and they would, as they're going out the door, as the door is closing, as they're pulling out of the drive, they yell one more thing out. It's something you already know. It's something they don't need to explain, but they're just putting that final admonition of remembrance, of accountability. Hey, you already know this, but don't take the nice car out of the garage, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Don't do this. And here Johnny's closing it. Hey, he's saying, keep yourself from idols. Don't put things in place where God only belongs in your heart. Amen. Let it be. Can we bow our heads? Lord, I thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, I thank you for your revelatory truth. I thank you for the depth of your word. And I thank you for the epistle of 1 John that teaches us to be real, that gives us hope. And I pray tonight, God, that you'd quicken it to our hearts and our minds and our soul. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for letting me go on. I had way too many notes and more stuff to say, but it's 8.16 and it's snowy out.